This is the best podcast on the planet. I'm not being biased at all. Thanks for listening, supporting, sharing, and subscribing to the Mindful Farm D podcast. Subscribe today wherever you listen to stay informed. Share with a few friends. Email Dr. Matman Harrell at themindfulfarmd at gmail.com exclamation point. Connect on Instagram at themindfulfarmd. Check out drmattmanharrell.bio.link for everything about the podcast. A thousand thanks and stay mindful. Today, I welcome back to the microphone, Dr. Marina Buxif. Many of you will remember her from season one of the podcast where we discussed your second brain. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go check it out. Albeit, there are some sound quality issues. Well, she's back again, this time with a cleaner sound. And we discuss her trip to Costa Rica this past summer, which was her very first shot at hosting a health retreat. So some very exciting and challenging stuff ahead. We also discuss how practitioners can strive to marry science and client values when treating disease states and improving health. Stay tuned. I am responsible for the healthy systemic function of my body. And so are you. This is why I've joined forces with the Functional Wellness Network to help you navigate how to give your body back the power it needs to promote healthy functioning. Check out my website, mindfully.mynewskin.com. That's mindfully.mynewskin.com for more information. And if you're a provider, chiropractor, MD, physical therapist, Whatever your industry, if you're interested in learning about an innovative, scientifically validated, revolutionary way to test your patient's antioxidant potential, email me at themindfulfarmd at gmail.com or find me on LinkedIn. And this will be a great way for you to measure your patient's antioxidant potential. Because as the saying goes, if you can measure it, you can change it. You're listening to the Mindful Farm D podcast. Welcome and a thousand thanks for tuning in. This podcast is about all of us. I'm your host and the mind behind the microphone, Matt Manharrell. My focus on this podcast is to explore the mind through genuine conversations, thought-provoking ideas, and the reality that the story of mental health is incomplete. Nation to another episode of the Mindful Farm D podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Marina Buxiv, if you guys remember her from season one. And I'm so, so excited to have her back on the podcast uh, to talk about some, some uh, wonderful things, that she, the things she's been up to here over the past few months, um, some really, really cool things that she's gotten into here lately. And uh, just as a reminder, she's uh, Dr. Buxiv is a registered doctor of pharmacy. She's a health coach. She's a clinical herbalist and lifelong 
learner of the healing arts. Uh, she created and is the creator of the Start Your Holistic Herbal Practice course, where she mentors other healthcare professionals in clinical herbal as well as um, business skills. She is a functional medicine pharmacist as a part of the Farm to Table telehealth platform and is the host of the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. Dr. Marina Booksif, thanks again for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me back on. Excellent, excellent. And, and you know, you that episode we did there in season one was one of my favorite. And, you know, I, we don't have to be shy about it. There were some technical difficulties yes. <laughs> <laughs> with audio, but, you know, I, it was so rich. I still, you know, I still wanted to get it out. And, and like I said, just in the in the post-editing uh, process, tried to do do my best to bring it back to, to quality. But, hey, things happen. Uh, but we're back, and I'm glad to have you back on. And, uh, you know, as we start here, I really just want to hear about um, a recent trip you took and just kind of walk us through what what the purpose of the trip was. Are you going to be doing it? Are you going to be doing trips like that again? Um, what was it like to be on the trip? Just, you know, we, we, we want to know everything. So, so yeah, so talk, talk to us a little bit about that trip you took recently. Sure. Uh, so it was my first ever retreat that I hosted and it was quite a feat. Uh, you know, looking back at it, I definitely feel I was a little bit ambitious, um, but it was really fun and a great, great learning experience for any future ones that I may host. So um, what it was, was a pretty much international trip to Costa Rica. So not only you know was it my first ever retreat, um, I did it really big. So went to Costa Rica, um, and also didn't have that much pl- uh, time that I um, to plan or market it. So for some reason, it just kind of happened, and I rolled with it. Um, and the reason that it even happened is because of my course that you mentioned. So earlier this year, back in January. I launched the Build, I renamed it Build uh, Your Holistic Herbal Practice course. And I expanded it currently into a six-month program. So my beta program was three months. And I realized, you know, there's just way too much in there, jam-packed pearls of wisdom. And so I wanted to create more of a community and accountability and do it in a mastermind group format and form community so I expanded uh, the materials. I added homework assignments, um, accountability check-ins, um, and lots of live calls throughout the six months. And so this this program became a six-month program. And again, uh, it focuses on incorporating herbal medicine into your existing practice if you're a healthcare practitioner or if um, you don't have a business and you would like to start one. This kind of teaches you the steps of becoming an entrepreneur and also in particularly um, teaches you clinical practice of working with patients, mostly focused on -on one-on-one work. Um, And so it establishes, you know, the parameters of the client practitioner relationship, the legal uh, considerations, especially depending on your scope of practice. So I mostly work with pharmacists. And so we talk a lot about that. And um, basically, I had a couple of pharmacists come to me and suggest that 
they would love to take my course in a format of a retreat. <laughs> so like they wow. were interested in the program and they yeah. said, can we travel with you and, you know, see this live and do like uh, an in-depth dive into herbal medicine in a retreat format? Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so a, big, a big undertaking. I mean, that, that's really cool too, that, you know, you're, uh, the people you've connected with so far were willing to, I mean, to even ask you that, like to give you that feedback, a, a new, you know, way or, a, um, a, you know, a special way to learn this material. Uh, so obviously you took them up on it and you did it. What, you know, yeah. what, 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 what kind of things did you guys do when you, when, you know, when you were on the trip? So I took up the challenge, right, um, of, of creating this whole um, experience and wrapping up my pretty in-depth course and taking, again, little bits and pieces of the foundations and uh, inserting, inserting it into a workshop style where I'd be facilitating um, the majority of it. But I also invited other guest facilitators to kind of deepen the process and add more um, on the energetic and cultural component, especially based on where we were. Um, so, you know, I outsourced where I felt there would be a benefit to um, learning about the energetic components, especially in a foreign country where I didn't know uh, some, well, most of the local plants. So I had to outsource some things in that format. And um, the retreat was called La Raiz. So that's translated in Spanish as the root. So um, the intention was really to explore what is the true root of our healthcare system, of our medicine, um, where um, are we rooted into as just humans? And all of that is really also a spin on the fact that plants have roots. And so everyone's roots, everyone who is uh, considered to be alive on this planet, or, you know, there's five different kingdoms that we talk about, and you can consider most of them to be alive in some way or form. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of just exploring this interconnection and this relationship and the fact that we are all connected to each other and to the earth and what really constitutes a good um, healthcare modality or a good practitioner of health. If we don't know our roots, we don't really know. We can't really treat the surface level. That's the big problem with medicine nowadays. And that's why functional medicine is getting really big at digging in, into root causes. So we're seeing that if you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, or if you're just treating a surface level issue and the symptom, uh, it doesn't really serve the patient, right? And right. so how can we how can we incorporate the history and the tradition and the evolution of humankind and as we were co-evolving with the other kingdoms and how can we nourish those relationships? And what we're finding is that the relationship is a two-way street. So we can't really benefit one particular individual patient mm. to the most, uh, you know, to the highest benefit to the extent that, of, you know, that would benefit everyone because we're not considering that big grand scale picture. So only if we really look outside of 
the individual and really focus on the collective, which involves even things beyond human, right? Mm. Um, it involves the whole planet. That when we figure out that we're each just a microcosm of what's going on in the macrocosm, and we look at life a little differently, look at health a little differently, go back to the origins, uh, go back to the simple stuff, actually enjoy nature's creations and respect it and honor it, that's when I feel that true health can really come to us. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's what you meant by, you know, earlier you mentioned um, you had to take into consideration the, you know, so you traveling to this foreign country, uh, Costa Rica, you had to take into to consideration the, the energy and the culture of the people there, right? Exactly. The way you were going. Yeah. And so when you, when you, you get there, you know, what, so can you share maybe what types of things that you uh, incorporate into your retreat, it, taking into account some of those um, cultural perspectives of the of the people in Costa Rica, um, and you know maybe for a, pr- a practitioner who is not familiar with the culture, but maybe maybe back over here in the uh, in the West they treat patients or uh, clients from Costa Rica that maybe you learned while you were there that they can incorporate into their uh, into their practice. Um, you know, as you take, took that into consideration. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think we are taught as healthcare providers, most of us are taught that the values that the patient holds are of utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not really carried out in practice, but we are taught that, you know, what the patient's perspective is, um, is going to really ultimately determine what level of care they choose uh, to receive because we're not here to force any sort of care onto them. They have to feel um, that they trust us as the provider and they feel safe um, in us giving them the care. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, you know, everybody that comes in, you should probably find out what their values are. And some of it is going to be culturally enforced and, Some of it is going to be uh, because of the way they were raised or their family values or some community that they're part of or their religion or anything else that might just make up a big component of who they are as a person and who they see themselves as. And that would inform what kind of care they're open to receiving. And as we know, there is such a huge placebo and nocebo effect. So somebody, you know, believes or has a certain um, attitude or value, uh, or does not believe that something will work for them, you know, that will play out clinically when we look at the results that somebody's able to achieve. So it's so individual based on people's genetics and their conditions and their unique bodies, but also their uh, mental state and their uh, emotional state and their um, just perception and mindset. And that is, like I said, very just multifaceted. So Going to Costa Rica, I um, actually had another fellow pharmacist that had moved down there from Texas, uh, and she was helping me plan the retreat. So she was helping to um, 
provide guidance on how we can, you know, respectfully <laughs> navigate the local cultures and um, hire some of the locals to help uh, facilitate the experience that we wanted to provide to the guests. So we had um, the concierge local um, chef person who yeah. basically arranged all the other vendors and facilitators. And he was our local chef and guide and helped us organize everything um, and outsource whenever it was needed. Uh, we stayed in this beautiful um, sacred geometry designed uh, Airbnb that was just amazing, an inorganic yeah. uh, fruit and herb farm, which was uh, pretty remote from um, Tamarindo, which was the closest town to us. Uh, and so it had access to the to the ocean, and it was just gorgeous. So the facilitators that I decided to hire out to um, facilitate what I was teaching in terms of clinical herbalism were actually, as I mentioned, mostly on the energetic uh, level. Um, so we were able to um, identify with the concierge um, many of the plants that were growing. And then there were books in the house uh, as well that we used. And we did have a tour that was um, in a property close by that was actually also really beautiful that has its own retreats that I fell in love with. And we had uh, a nice guide of the local flora and fauna there. And then um, in terms of the energetic help, we did some chakra healing work and introduction to something called the unified integrative medicine theory. Mm -hmm. And this was actually um, outsourced from an Israeli doctor but the other the other facilitators were local, so we had a sound healing ceremony, a cacao ceremony, um, and then we also had uh, let me see what else um, vocal activation, and so I thought these were all very complementary practices to seeing what other modalities are out there and what culturally people. Um, how they see medicine as just so multifaceted and how we can heal on so many different levels or um, how the different levels all work together. Yeah. What, what is this? Okay. So I, I missed it. And I want to go back to something you said too, because I think it's interesting that you used a chef as your, as also your guide um, mm -hmm. because that, that, that kind of plays well into uh, what we'll be talking about later. Uh, you know, what, about intuitive eating. And yeah, I just wrote something down here. You know, you use food as a guide. And so just just keep that nugget there for a second. I want to come back <laughs> to that. But um, the you, you mentioned something about the unified. What was that that theory you, you, you mentioned again? Yeah. Unified integrative medicine theory. Integrative medicine theory. What can you share a little bit about what that is? Because I'm, I'm going to be honest, I've never heard of that. I don't I don't even know yeah. how to process that. <laughs> I haven't heard about it either until I met this doctor who's Israeli, but currently residing in Italy. And he learned from his teacher in Israel uh, who developed this method. And it basically unites a lot of the other kind of energetic theories and practices. 
And they're all kind of similar across different, you know, countries and uh, traditional wisdom in terms of usually traditional medicine does have some sort of energetic or spiritual component that it um, adds into the physical medicine um, and, and the theories kind of work together. For example, Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine are the two big ones that people know about, but many other countries and cultures have their own uh, subsets of similar theories and practices. And so this theory was taught in a very uh, organized systemic way. Um, it was, you know, a one day seminar, maybe half a day seminar. And then we also had a practice uh, that we, uh, we would practice every day on our own, which was a type of breathing technique. And also we did it as a group, which was really, really powerful. And we were led to uh, cleanse our chakras or also strengthen the flow of the chakras. So, you know, you want things to be flowing. You don't want there to be any kind of blockages or stuckness. So, um, you know, whatever culture you look at, again, is it prana, is it chi or whatever it is, whenever there's free flow and expansion, it leads us towards more vitality and health. And whenever there's contraction, um, you know, there's something that's just not going right. And it's just kind of more dense energy and that's when things can occlude and, you know, it kind of makes sense on an energetic and even a physical level if you think about it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I mean, uh, the, the core tenets, as you know, as you mentioned and you pointed out what it, what it sounds like this unified integrative uh, medicine theory, um, you know, so it sounds like they're, they take into consideration all of these different ways to heal, to practice uh, healing others. And, um, you know, for, for providers on the phone or, or listening to the podcast, rather, um, these methods and things that, that and, and like you said, practices that, that can be implemented to help someone. And it, and it sounds like it would be a good fit for a provider uh, if they want to be mindful about the patient's culture, the patient's, um, you know, socioeconomic status, all of the different things that make that really play into who we are um, as an individual. If you're if you are aware of this, you know, some of the core tenets of the unified integrative theory, um, then you might be able to better serve your 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 patients or your clients. And so, I mean, I'd love to be able to learn more about that theory. Do you have a, a site or a resource suggestion where where listener myself and listeners can go to 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 yes to learn more yeah so you can literally google unified integrative medicine theory mm -hmm. and what's going to pop up is dr nader buto b-u-t-t-o uh, and so there's going to be a couple of websites and then there's going to be his personal website and the seminar that we had and he teaches many but one of his students was the one who was teaching us and we really dived pretty deep into what uh, a soul is according mm -hmm. to this theory. And again, Chinese medicine also has five different types of souls that um, five different types of, you know, energy that we talk about um, in Chinese medicine. And so in, in this, there are three um, different types, like a soul is, can be broken down into three components. And one of the components is like basically ethereal and it never dies. And basically the concept is that you, 
in this theory um, and in the way that it was taught to us is that, you know, you have this internal soul, that's one part of your soul, but then you live your physical manifestation. And then there's another third type to the soul, but it basically gives you permission to just explore the life that you were given and be really grateful and know that nothing that ever happens to you on this plane is good or bad. It's just an experience for you. And it's just a way for you to gain those experiences and learn the lessons in this body that you were given. And just, again, be grateful for every second of it, but also know that you'll have another chance, you know, and so there's no way you could really fail because, um, you know, you just live your best life. You just be in gratitude for what you have. Um, You know, there's also different ways of of gaining energy and losing energy. So once you learn what are the practices that help you gain energy and feel your best, you incorporate those. And those will obviously help you lead a healthier, happier life. Yeah. Now, I, I find it very interesting what you're saying, because you and I both are pharmacists and which which by implication means that we're we're scientists right at heart. And. As I'm listening to you, I, I'm connecting with what you're saying because I'm one who who believes that there is a spiritual component to our ability to heal. But others of our colleagues or others and you know people in other fields, professionals in other fields, whenever you get and start talking about things like what you're mentioning, spirituality, uh, uh, chakras, and these things that we we tap into in order to again, to move toward healing, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever the case might be, whenever we move to this this place of spirituality, there's always, well, for me anyway, it, there seems to be this, no, we don't talk about that, right? We don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to know about that. We don't want to hear about that um, because, you know, I guess one reason is because maybe spirituality takes so many different forms for so, for so many different people. And maybe there is this, this, um, hesitation to discuss it really because of you know ignorance or or lack of knowledge on how to approach the subject so you know for the provider on the on who you might be listening the the future pharmacist the future you know psychiatrist whoever might be listening to this podcast how do you how do you, how would you suggest we move as a country really and as a healthcare uh, um system how do you suggest we move towards really the acceptance that spirituality is a fundamental part of who we are, how, but how do we move and, and marry the two together, science and spirituality? Is, is that even possible? Well, there's a saying, right? That we're not a human having a, you know, we're not a physical body having a spiritual experience. It's actually where a spirit having a physical experience. Yeah. Um, so it depends on which, side of that you fall on. But like you said, even though there's no one universal way of practicing spirituality, there is a universal uh, pull that humans have towards spirituality. And it is practiced by most humans in one way or another, even those that um, claim to be agnostic or atheist, mm-hmm. even they probably are doing something and awarding something to, you know, other realms that are beyond our consciousness, our everyday consciousness, or other dimensions or other realities, or just things that are not 
um, logical or not able to be explained, and yet they happen. So there must be some sort of irrational explanation for it because we're just so proud of being these rational, intelligent beings. But uh, there's also a part of us that is not as logical. And in according to ancient tradition, it's more so that there's these masculine and feminine qualities to the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't mean that in like, you know, a gender yeah. uh, way. Yeah. I mean that in a way that of a yin and yang, just like Chinese medicine. Yeah. So every thing that is dark also has something light and everything that's light also has something dark. And again, those are not positive or negative qualities. They're just different. So because we live in this physical world, um, there is this nature of a dichotomy or duality in most of our experiences. But the truth is, it's not just one or the other. It's really both always coexisting and providing meaning to the other part of the dichotomy. So nothing is ever black and white, but we need to see the contrast between black and white to have any sort of experience or provide any sort of meaning to anything that we're experiencing. So it's all just relative, you know, Mm -hmm. everything that, that happens is just relative to something else that happens. And so we're all just living our own individual experiences and seeing the same thing. And one of us can perceive something as more black and another one perceives something as more white. And to answer your earlier question about what this means in clinical practice or what this means to the scientist, well, I consider a scientist somebody with an open mind. So if they already have a preconceived notion of denying a certain hypothesis or disproving it or saying that no way can this spirituality thing be real or whatever the case is, that's not a scientist because a scientist does a series of experiments and observations without any preconceived biases or notions and then sees what is the outcome and draws some conclusions. And even after the conclusion is drawn, there's still follow-up and there's still more experiences and more experiments and more observation to make sure that it's still um, in according to your previous conclusion and that there's nothing new that is coming in to kind of level out the playing field or serve as a new level of evidence. So, um, So we're always kind of approaching things with an open mind and nothing is ever final because we're learning new things every day. Definitely. And, and I, I really do think that, you know, not just in America, but maybe even perhaps globally, we have, we, I think we have a long way to go in terms of, again, accepting this fact. I think we've come a long way, but we, all, we also have a long way to go because I can think of uh, fields like um, psychedelics, for example, uh, and how, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was impossible, nearly impossible to find any type of empirical data on the use of psychedelics and how they are yeah, helpful, how they are helpful in promoting pro-social behaviors and people who, you know, suffer from depression or anger issues and those types of things. And yet today, um, we we're seeing more and more work come out 
uh, on those uh, on psychedelics in particular, um, which is something I've recently uh, here in the past four or five months become more and more interested in uh, because I think there's something there. Um, but the the stigma around using them, you know, it greatly limited our so-called scientists ability to to even have a discussion about it. And, you know, while I'm here, just even talking to you about it, I've tried to connect with other people to talk about psychedelics because there is this spiritual component associated with psychedelics. I don't know if you've done any reading on them, but um, they're afraid to talk about it, even still. You know, they're afraid to, to uh, they're sort of not really practicing in the shadows, but their, their, their science has not really been accepted yet um, by the so-called science, science community. And so, you know, again, I, I think we have a, we've come a long way, but we also have a, a long way to go in terms of marrying these two things together, um, you know, in yeah. the clinical space. So, Absolutely. Um, I don't have to tell you about all the bias that goes into publishing a study and then yeah. interpreting a study and all of the um, statistical analyses and conclusions and everything from A to Z can have a potential bias associated with it. Yeah. So uh, it is difficult, I guess, because there's still a stigma um, that comes from doing something that's not yet widely practiced or not accepted as a standard a guideline of care or, you know, has the gold clinical standard. Right. Right. Um, however, we also need to uh, examine why there is a stigma in the first place. And I think most of it is because uh, there is not enough information because it was illegal right. for a long time. So yeah. it was literally, you know, impossible or at least next to impossible to really make any sort of um, randomized controlled trials or any sort of clinical studies with some substance that has been illegal. However, it just goes to show that so it's a real testament that people were willing to experiment, whether self-experiment or working with clients with these illicit substances while they're still illicit. It means that they really did see huge benefits that outweighed these risks of doing something illicit because they really saw how great it was for either themselves as a personal medication, right? Because we self-medicate too with plants oh, yeah. because it's, that's why I study herbalism because it was natural in evolution that we would use the resources around us. So we build shelter from the plant materials. We uh, eat plants as food. You know, the basis of our diet should really be plants for best effects. We've all agreed on that, even though nutrition is another kind of controversial subject yeah. most of the time. So, you know, plants, mushrooms, um, everything else, minerals, you know, we need minerals as cofactors. We need vitamins, which have many different structures and sources, but eating a diverse um you know, variety of different types of plant foods would actually provide most, if not all. And then some people supplement with animal products for their other fat soluble vitamins. Uh, so the point is when people coexist with nature around them and we have this relationship and we 
notice effects, whether again, it's a spiritual um, or sometimes shamanic kind of relationship where the plants are literally able to communicate something to the person or whether it's more of a scientific approach where we try a berry and, you know, it seems to be okay and we don't drop dead. And then we realize, okay, this berry is good. It tastes good. Um, you know, and now we start to eat more and more. And then we realize, oh, you know, like it's a blueberry or it's a raspberry and these are mm-hmm. edible berries. And so it, it's a series of, you know, trial and error or maybe some kind of intuition plays a role. But we evolved not knowing anything and not having any books to guide us. We just had ourselves and our elders. Yeah. So when we uh, pass down these traditions and practices from generation to generation, and then we had the oral and the spoken and then the written word, that's when information uh, kind of started having a network and a highway. And now information is just so widely accessible to almost everyone. And it's amazing. But now this is why all the information is um, traveling super fast. And now we can access so much more than ever before. Uh, But when we really look at the historical uses and relationships with uh, people and plants and mushrooms and uh, substances, you know, we did learn which doses, quote unquote, would be, you know, something that's beneficial, whether it's nutritious, whether it's medicinal or whether there is some kind of toxic dose that we should be aware of. And so all of these things we kind of learned through time. And when we saw benefits from things that were then made illegal, um, it just made no sense to a lot of the people that saw the benefits firsthand. And literally every country in the world has both medicinal and recreational use of cannabis because yeah. it's a natural plant that grows everywhere. And um, teenagers mostly, you know, but also adults, uh, even if they're using it recreationally, if you think about it, they are using it for a certain purpose to achieve a certain purpose. So if they're achieving it uh, like an anxiolytic effect or relaxation or for insomnia or for some other effect, it's they're using it because it makes them feel good. And where's the line between, you know, um, medicinal and recreational use in a plant yeah. like that? And again, well, well you know, everything- it's, it, it's almost like, and Maria, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's almost like too with that, like that, that's the point of healing, right? When you, when you, when you're healed and you feel better, it's a pleasurable experience, right? And so, yeah. but we, we, we sort of punish, um, we punish the pleasure. Them the pleasure, right. <laughs> we punish the pleasure of, of using the substances. Um, you know, yes, you're going to have people out there who abuse anything. I mean, yes, people anything. will abuse water if they could, right? Yeah. Um, people will abuse knowledge, okay, if they could. But the point is, you get to this, you get to this place where, you know, when do we in America begin to accept or Western countries begin to accept um, the fact that these natural remedies are out there for a reason for us to use? And, oh, my gosh, it would be so much, so much more beneficial for us to tap into those instead of running away from them and relying so much on the synthetics and, you know, the man-made and the lab stuff. Um, just just given the, the, you know, we're talking about... Um, um, you know, marijuana, but yeah. you know, I, I again, I, I 
just knowing how people suffer from chronic pain, for example. Um, I mean, I and and the addictions that come with all that different type of stuff, and it it just makes so much sense. And yet, still, we haven't arrived to that place where we can accept what uh, what nature has to offer, you know, for us to use. So. Yeah. And so I think the reasons are rooted, again, in the fact that there's this need for control and for superiority of humankind. So we we think that, okay, we're rational beings, we have our science, so we can use our rational capacity and like drop everything else, you know, like let's forget we have intuition or spirituality available to us. Let's cut everything off and just rely on science, which unfortunately does not solve all the pieces of the puzzle and still leaves us wanting you know we all want on some level what we really want to be uh, to receive as a human is care love affection appreciation we want to feel like we belong here and our life matters and somebody sees us for who we really are and accepts us just as we are and loves us and this concept of love is could be you know it could be considered an esoteric topic like what would a scientific definition of love <laughs> even be all right so it's not something you can measure see or use any of your senses on except for the sixth sense right oh but you can <laughs> you can right okay so again going back to the psychedelics when 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 you when you look at some of the research and and you show that people who have an experience with psychedelics before the experience, before the, the study, they have these uh, negative social uh, interactions. They, you know, they, they can't seem to, for example, I'm just, okay, they can't seem to bring themselves, for example, to, to treat their neighbor with respect, right? Mm-hmm. But then after the experience, they come to a place where they're better able to, they have this different view. It's like something happens. They, their, their perspective shifts, yep. and now they are, they're, they they do exude and administer more pro-social behaviors, like being kind to want to your to your neighbor, um, not fearing death because 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 you're willing now to live a more positive life, if you will. Um, then th- that fear of death is not there. You know, it, it, it you just have a different a different perspective. And so, yes, while we we may not be able to have a a tool per se. But you can see it. You can see the changes in the in their behavior. And so, I mean, isn't that a way to measure? You know, if we're, yeah. if we're scientists and we're, we're we're so focused on the measurement, I mean, that is a that is a valid and valuable measurement to to be able to to see those pro social behaviors now present in that individual's life. Yeah. So it's kind of like a marker, right, that we yeah. use to to measure something else that we're interested in. Uh, and yes, they can also measure electromagnetic currents and fields around our heart center, which mm-hmm. has even more they're finding out to do with being the real kind of control center in your body from which everything else originates and emanates than the brain, which we've always been obsessed with, right? Yeah. Um, so it just goes to show that you know, historically, this is how we, especially in the West, have been evolving. And again, this dichotomy and this concept of the masculine and the feminine, where 
um, the masculine, I think, is more of the logical, rational, which is so highly valued, right, in science and in our Western uh, society. But then the more feminine uh, aspects are more unknown, um, kind of mysterious, you know, uh, even the female body, it's like, oh, it's a mystery and the womb and the dark space and, right. you know, what's going on there, you know, they could grow an extra organ of the placenta, right. an extra human, um, and they seem to kind of be more in rhythm, um, like, feminine aspect in general with the cycles of nature because there's cyclical changes that are constantly going on in women's bodies as opposed to men's which are more stable and more constant mm -hmm. even though there's still cycles they're just um not as obvious sure and uh so there's this kind of more of an intimate connection that connects oh, women uh, to the earth and to intuition in that way because their bodies are just designed that way and um you know, for a long time, I think it was just looked down upon because it was so mysterious and not really able to be fully accepted or explained in scientific terms. Um, so there's this dichotomy again, where it's like we value this rational scientific approach and we uh, don't value the other capacities that we have as humans, which goes beyond, you know, there science is great rational mind is great but again you know some certain uh, fundamental um things that make us human and make us have a valuable meaningful experience doesn't really make sense to the rational mind like you know how we're chasing love or how we want to be married and you know marriage is another whole concept that you know is made is a made-up construct but most people do want to meet of some sort, whether or not it's forever or for a period of time. It, we do feel great in community or in a relationship with other beings. Um, and yeah, it could be a big community or a smaller community or a partnership. But that's what we're naturally drawn to. And that right. can't really be explained. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, so we're we're let's let's back up a minute because I know we're we're going to be running out of time here, um, and all of this all of this discussion is so valuable, man. And we can we can spend. I could talk to you for hours, by the way, because I mean, <laughs> I <laughs> could tell. Just, I just want to say one more thing yeah, about sure. religion too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned before that you know spirituality is not really widely accepted by especially scientific minded community. Uh, however, I would say that religion is widely accepted, even among scientists, and in particularly, you know, um, the religion that, that's monotheistic, and especially, for example, the widespread Christian religion, right? So why, why would we believe, you know, in this uh, person and this deity that is preaching about love, but not really following what he preaches or using means like inquisitions and other things to make mm. people believe the same mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And so we're using this holy concept and um, everything that Jesus stands for, I think is absolutely great, yeah. but we're not really following what he's teaching. We're just kind of making him be the figurehead and idolizing him, which yeah. is not really what he was preaching in the first place. We, we use it when it's, when it's a benefit to us. Like you mentioned the conquests and the, and the, the, um, you know, inquisitions and all those different kind of things. We use it when it's, when it's beneficial, unfortunately, you know, and some yeah. people would even say though, that there is a difference between 
um, spirituality and religion, you know, re with religion being the specific practices that one, one um, delves in, uh, you know, like, um, you know, praying on Sunday or praying on, on a Monday, like the specific religious practices. But you're exactly right, is that we, we aren't really and truly following um, the tenets. The tenets, right. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so my point is, you know, how could you call yourself a scientist and a religious person, but not a spiritual person? Like, where right. is the difference between each of those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great question and food for thought. I think people should really consider, you know, what, what they uh, subscribe to. Um, because if you really want to know the truth, science can also be a form of of faith you know yeah. we put we put more of our uh, more of our trust into the empirical well that that's faith um yeah. because <laughs> you know i heard it said once that um science doesn't tell people anything but it's the it's the person interpreting the science that tells the the people downstream you know Absolutely. what the science is saying and so i think that that notion is is exactly true but okay so if we if we're talking about that that person who is looking at that scientific data he is a per he or she is a person and they also have some sort of context or perspective that is going to bleed over if you will into what they believe the science is saying about whatever it is that they're studying and so even for the scientific mind there is still this this element of faith associated with what you're viewing and what you're interpreting. Absolutely. Yeah. The ultimate goal is to be objective, but everybody's personal and all the other yeah. factors and experiences that we mentioned is going to affect their subjectivity, right? And Absolutely. inform them a little bit, no matter what, and give them a sort of bias, even if we try to be objective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're there at the, in Costa Rica, you have your food as a guide. Yes. <laughs> um, your chef. And um, you, you, what I wanted to kind of move into is this article that you um, wrote some months ago on your, on your website, drmarinabooksif.com, um, where you talk about what is intuitive eating and why you need to master this habit. And so you, you, you mentioned in there that in your research, you noticed an important link between spirituality and food. And I know we just talked a lot about spirituality, um, you know, but can you talk a little bit about this, this, uh, this link that you, that you noticed as you were doing your research, this link between spirituality and food, for example? Sure. So actually, uh, this was an excerpt from a book I contributed to a few years ago for Dr. Christina Fontana. And uh, the whole book could actually be downloaded from my website. It's called Master Your Health in Five Simple Steps. And so my chapter was about um, intuitive eating and mindfulness. So what I did notice was that if somebody, you know, if we have a spectrum as a human being, right? So our spectrum can really encompass two directions, one of which will be more towards the spiritual intuitive aspect, as I mentioned before, the two polarities of masculine and feminine. But another way of looking at it is the physical and the kind of like unseen or mysterious or the intuitive. 
So that's kind of how I saw the two poles of uh, one drawing us more into this physical realm of us experiencing our physical bodies and all the empirical sensations, right, of our five organoleptic senses. And then the other direction and pole drawing us more to kind of the subliminal uh, realms, the unseen, the unexplained, um, and something that's more spiritual and more intangible, if you will. So how do we really embody both of those as a human and stay in balance? Or there's some humans or some practices um, that anybody has access to that could uh, kind of swing you from one pole to another. Um, and so we we can access both of those. So if you think about people who are monks, right, or nuns, mm-hmm. or are living this, um, you know, life of uh, where they give up any kind of physical riches or, um, you know, even giving up pleasures of the body or anything like that, and they they want to remove themselves from this physical body almost by denying them the physical experiences that could give them this pleasure mm-hmm. and um, eating also like, you know, being a, glut- a glutton, right? Um, yeah. Or um, so most people that you see that are le- leaving this, leading these simple monastic lifestyles, they give up anything that can give you this sort of like, physical from being in a physical body to give you like this high because they want to get their high from connecting to their spiritual selves and to their faith or to their meditation practice and doing this um really requires you to tune in on a more subtle level and having all the other distractions is really just like noise entering your system and preventing you from achieving what you're there to do um, so, you know, some, some people, you know, to kind of connect to spirituality or to connect with the divine or um, to really kind of transcend, some people are looking for a transcendental experience, you really need a very clean body and mind and you can't clutter it with, um, you know, very fatty and salty and spiced foods and uh, lots of other like stimulation stimuli that's going to be physical and you really need to retreat in a way and be by yourself so you can access those other states of mind and have a more clear connection to the other if you want to call them realms of being so you know we were talking about like how people don't believe in spirituality but even if you believe in religion or if you practice a religion you can understand, for example, when you're praying, no matter you know where you are and what religion you practice, but if you're connecting, it's just, the connection is just between you and God or you and the creator or you and whatever you, the universe, right? Um, that connection has to be, the, clear, the clearer it can be if you remove the other distractions, <laughs> right? Yeah. So when you're just taking a moment to be mindful, to be still, to be silent, and to not have like so much food digesting in your stomach, that's when you can open those doors wider. Yeah. So, I I mean, and and really fasting, you know, one word that comes to mind for everything that you said is, is fasting, like people taking, taking um, a break from, and I know fasting comes in so many different forms, but, you know, I, I do practice fasting. Um, and for me, it's taking a break from, from food. Uh, I may, you know, drink water. Um, if I choose to fast for 24 hours or, 
whatever the case might be, but just, just taking a step back um, from, from food, from the meal to do exactly what you, you just suggested. Um, and there are so many, so many documentaries out there. It's kind of laughable uh, about, you know, this very thing and, and the importance of taking a break from, um, from the physical, if you will, so that you can tap more into those spiritual elements of, of our existence. Um, you, you also mentioned conditions like binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, food addictions and such that they really have an emotional link in terms of why people even uh, experience those things or why they, um, you know, for example, why they might choose to binge on, on a particular food. And so, you know, what you're, what you could be addressing there, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you could, could be addressing there is uh, trauma, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, people have this, this traumatic experience in their life. And every time they think about it or are reminded about it, they go to this, this food, this source, again, it could be food. Um, it could be uh, drinking alcohol, whatever it is. That's, that's really in all intents and purposes, dis- destructive to the body. Um, you know, it has an emotional link. So there's this, there's spirituality and food, and then there's the emotional and food. Do you want to, can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think the two big terms that are being constantly thrown around nowadays are trauma and triggers. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're just exploring these things now uh, because we're realizing how commonplace they really are. You know, even what some people don't perceive as trauma another person could perceive as trauma and again it could range from so many things from like you know something very quote-unquote minor to some um very very major abusive you know really horrible experience um but each of those experiences could really inform our uh, traumatic response because ever um once we have experienced, whether it's a real or perceived trauma, the point is that perception piece. So we feel as if um, there was something done to us that we did not like, that we were violated in some way, that we did, were not safe in that situation that happened. And that makes us, our brain actually, go into this protective mode where we would like to keep us safe from now on. So now we just kind of develop this amygdala relationship with fear and we just go into fight or flight or freeze all the time whenever there is a potential trigger that uh, alarms us to the fact that this might be another dangerous situation that may be similar to another situation that you um, experienced trauma from. So you, your brain and your body just really wants to protect you and that's the mechanism that it has. Uh, but if you, um, you know, are constantly in that state and you perceive everything as a trigger, then it becomes just very challenging to um, kind of untrain yourself to, to, feel, um, to feel threatened and to do the opposite, which is what we want is, like I was saying before, a feeling of safety want to feel that you know we are loved and we're safe and we're held yeah for sure yeah and you know those are those are really um, I, I believe the dsm by categorizes those those particular um conditions like binge eating anorexia and so on and so forth as adjustment disorders well what what are you what are you having a you know an issue adjusting from well it's probably an adjustment associated with again a trauma or a trigger um you know just like you you unpack so you know 
as we kind of unfortunately have to come to a close, I wanted to just briefly talk about some of the things you mentioned in there on, you know, what, what exactly is intuitive eating and how do we practice it? Um, and I kind of wanted to go through them one by one. Can, can we, can we do that real quick? It's like 10 of them. If you have time. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a couple of lists there. I have two lists. Yeah. Um, and so I have one list that's more so instructions on how to practice mindfulness and intuitive eating. And the second list is more to help you with your emotions. And um, like you were well, saying, it's that, it's that first list that I want to go through that, that, sure. um, that uh, intuitive eating muscles, how to build your intuitive eating muscles. And the first thing you mentioned is regularly scheduled meals. So let, let's do it like a rapid fire. So okay. I'll, I'll say it, I'll say what the, what you suggested. And then um, you kind of, you know, respond and kind of give us a little bit of some pointers, I guess, on it. So the first one is regularly scheduled meals. What do you mean? So many people, but again, in particular, the female body seems to be, um, you know, very, much dependent on a regular eating schedule. Otherwise we can get hangry, quote unquote. (laughs) And this has to do with our hormones and, you know, women require a little bit more of the steroidal or the, you know, fat, quote unquote, cholesterol based hormones for, you know, to to develop our estrogen and progesterone and so forth. And so we tend to not do as well on fasting or even intermittent fasting. But again, this is very individualized. But like I said, like you were saying before about fasting and how great it is, um, you know, I think it is great for the people that can do it. But for for some people, and again, I'm finding more for the my female population that they don't do as well as men with fasting. So mm-hmm. that's why intermittent fasting could be a good idea. Or even if you can do a full like, 18 hour window, then you could do a 12 hour window or whatever works for you. So you really have to, again, be more in tune as to, is this working for your body? How are you feeling? And really tuning in and asking yourself those questions, giving you, it's going to give you the space to, provide the answers to your own self. So with the regularly scheduled meals, what you're doing is whether or not it's fasting, right? You could say, I'm going to eat during uh, this 12 hour period, but it's going to be regularly scheduled so that your blood sugar levels are steady and your insulin levels are steady. And therefore we're just keeping our metabolic um, balance within the body. And again, preventing any kind of drops of anything, including our moods, uh, which are very much tied to our sugar. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. Re- reduce processed foods. That was the second one. Absolutely. Yeah. Because as we mentioned before, um, I'm all about going back to your roots and, and just tapping into whatever has been working for a long period of time. Uh, that's my form of being scientific to actually observe for a very long time and very large populations to me say more than RCTs personally. So um, I am about just being as simple as possible, and that includes meal planning, and that includes uh, your meals should really be as close as possible to its natural form and not be in a sort of package, even though you know the labels are all great and everything, and it can make you think that you're eating a super healthful food, but the fact that it's packaged is already indicative of some sort of processing. 
I even saw nowadays they're putting oranges into plastic containers, you know, after peeling them. It's like, well, if only nature provided a peel for the orange, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) So true. Um, all right. The, the third one was, um, uh, assess, really assess a readiness to eat. And you, you say some things in there that, um, you know, people might be better able to connect with, but basically what I took from it was assess a readiness to eat. And what, what are you saying there? So sometimes we will eat because um, of maybe our own, re- you know, schedule that we planned out for ourselves. Um, or maybe sometimes it's going to be because you're sp- sporadically somebody offers uh, a free lunch or something like whether it's work sponsored or you're going out with friends or, you know, you just kind of look to your outside circumstances for your um, time to eat for your scheduled time slot rather than tuning into your body and seeing whether or not you are uh, really hungry for this meal or you're just going to be eating without really being hungry. Mm. So, you know, it's it just um, a matter of seeing because we eat when we're hungry. That's that's the point of eating to keep our energy up. And some people will experience that differently, right? That's why I'm, this is not right for everyone. Some right, people, right. You know, some people do need more rigorously scheduled foods and they may not even feel hungry before they suddenly have their blood sugar drop. But for um, most people, they can sense the beginning of hunger right throughout the day in between their meals. And that's when they can kind of their body is kind of giving them the signals that they need to prep for um, finding the next meal and, and, you know, the next nourishment because levels are dropping. Um, So you know, you have to tune into yourself and see how long does your hunger last? You know, when should you be ready to provide your body the meal before it really does crashes you into like a jittery state sometimes for people with blood sugar issues. Um, And so, you know, instead of judging your time to eat based on outside circumstances, it's really about tuning in and seeing, okay, well, am I hungry? Am I ready for this next meal? Gotcha. And then the, the fourth one was uh, practice gratitude before eating. This is probably one of my favorite ones. What do you mean there? Yes. Yeah, so I love just taking a pause or, you know, finding a space to be still before you start to intake the food or ingest the food. So uh, that's just like an opportunity for us to uh, bring us to this rest and digest phase um, so that we can properly assimilate the beautiful nutrients that we're about to, uh, you know, uh, put into our mouth and, and all of that. So the gratitude practice or saying as some kind of blessing or um, grace or prayer is allowing you to get on this level of um, just being still and being, um, again, in that state of gratitude also uh, automatically fires off some pleasure neurons too, because sometimes we're looking for the grass that's greener on the other side. But when you're in this state of gratitude, you um, recognize what what's the good stuff that you already have. And that yeah. is a feeling that brings contentment and bliss. And again, brings us closer to the rest and digest um, parasympathetic state, which is optimal for us to digest our food. 
Absolutely. And the, the next one sort of is related to it as well. Um, you mentioned slowing down. And I, I know the last time we spoke, I told you about my son, who I have to frequently tell him, dude, slow down. Like the food's not going anywhere. There's more <laughs> if you want it, but just, just slow down in this moment right now. So, uh, but anyway, talk a little bit about uh, slowing down and, and what that might look like. Yes. Yeah, so I recently actually started a challenge for some of my clients and I partook in it because I wanted to support them and it turned out to be really difficult, but the challenge is to chew 30 times mm -hmm. each bite yeah. of food before you swallow it. And also the idea is that before you swallow your food should really already be uh, liquid, like right. consistency, eh, consistency, because that is actually how the stomach wants to accept your food. Um, and then it turns it into chyme and all of that. So you're actually prepping every single step of the digestion process um, from the beginning phase, which is really um, twofold, which is the chewing and mechanical aspect of the mouth, but also that rest and digest phase and just being ready to eat, which is the cephalic phase of digestion where your brain understands that you're about to receive food and then it turns on the parasympathetic and other enzymes that are going to get worked out. So those two phases are really crucial for you to optimize every single step of digestion and for you to, again, receive the benefits of the food that you're eating. So my, 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 in trying to teach my son to slow down, I actually have him do this challenge. I didn't go 30 seconds because I, I didn't want him to fail too badly. So I told him <laughs> just, just, I'm sorry, not 30 seconds, 30 times. So I told him just chew 20 times and he, he got to about the 10th time and he's like, daddy, I can't help it. The food just wants to go down. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, go ahead. You can swallow your food. But anyway, yeah. So slow down, everybody. Slow down. Yeah. You know, challenge, I challenge the listeners. <laughs> go and chew your food each bite 30 times and, and let us know how you, how you succeed at that. Well, um, the other tip to that, which I found personally is to actually take smaller bites. Yes. So because that will facilitate you to actually be able to take the 30 chews. Uh, you otherwise, go. you're probably going to swallow, like, yeah. you know, a portion of it before you finish the chewing. There you go. Yep. And so the, the next one that you mentioned is um, limit distractions. And let's, let's do two of them together. Limit distractions and then um, the 80% rule. Uh, talk about those two tips. Sure. Um, so the distraction is easy because, again, you want your body to be fully focused on the food and the digestion, which will require that parasympathetic activation. So if you're going to be doing something else like watching TV or reading a book or um, whatever else, you're actually diverting the blood away from your digestive organs and into your brain so you can focus on the other stuff. So they also say, you know, don't go do a rigorous activity right after you eat for the same purpose, um, because now you're going to be diverting the blood to the muscles. Mm. But basically anything that's going to be diverting your body's attention and resources from where it's supposed to be, which is in the parasympathetic digestive mode, is not going to be a benefit for you to, again, absorb all the nutrients and ha and uh, have your digestive tract fully um, optimal. And that's why a lot of people get, um, you know, digestive issues and then they lack enzymes um, and they get leaky gut and then they have burping and 
other gases and whatever the case is, indigestion and pain, that just is, those are all symptoms and signs that something is not optimal in your digestive uh, tract. And then some of these simple ways that we're talking about to prep yourself and eat more mindfully can actually provide so much, um, you know, relief and prevent many of these things that people are experiencing on a daily basis. Um, so the only exception to that that I found is if you're eating in a social setting, um, you know, socializing and talking to people is actually considered to be okay and it doesn't mm -hmm. interfere too much. So like you could still have dinner with your family, everyone. Because Dr. Books have said so. Yeah, no, no, no. You can still have dinner with your family. <laughs> you should have dinner with your family. Absolutely. To you make it a tradition. Absolutely. Um, and then the second part of that, of that other um, blue zone countries, for example, in Japan, um, there is this general rule of thumb that you should be aiming to only get about 80% full before you finish the meal. So sometimes, you know, when we eat really fast, we can actually stuff enough food in ourselves to surpass our satiety mm. levels. Yes. So because our brain also needs time to process how full is our stomach getting. And so when the stomach is getting about, you know, two thirds full is actually um, the best time to stop eating because it needs space in order to churn and uh, mix all the food with, you know, the acid and the chyme and digest the peptides in, in the stomach because that's also going to have a mechanical and a chemical phase down there. So we do need to leave some space there. We can't just stuff the full stomach. And if we do consistently do that, that's when our stomach stretches and grows and, you know, obesity happens. So when we keep it to the 80% full sensation, uh, we actually give our brain enough time to catch up. And then we actually uh, will realize we're actually 100% full, you know, and we just needed some time to sit and realize that. Got you. And then the, the, the last one, which is, you know, probably the most obvious, right? You want to finish the meal, but you specifically point out, you know, some things that folks can probably do um, as they finish the meal you know, in, in practicing being mindful or in practicing this intuitive eating. So what are some of the things you mentioned about finishing the meal? So I see eating as something that could be a ritual. So like I said before, it's not something to hopefully feel uh, ashamed or confused about because people who do have this kind of emotional eater and eating patterns will also then be afraid of the very thing that is supposed to nourish them because they know they have this history of abuse. So just like you were saying, um, an alcoholic, you know, or whatever else, you know, we humans have found a way to abuse everything, but it's particularly confusing when we're abusing something that is necessary for our life force and our vitality. And there's no way around it. We can't just quit food, cold turkey, for example, mm -hmm. like we could alcohol right. or drugs we actually need to face this on a daily basis because otherwise we, uh, you know, we won't be able to live. So this is like in, in the mind of an emotionally eating disordered person, it's like a necessary evil, but they can overdo it with either, you know, going either way of, a, you know, too much food or too little food or throwing up the food or whatever right. it is. So, um, you know, we need to reestablish our relationship 
to view food as not something to fear, but something to revere and something that is necessary and is providing us the nourishment. And there is a way to have a balanced, right relationship with it. And in life, I think living in a way of ritual um, is better than living in like a way of habit or routine. So mm. actually approaching every meal time as something um, that can be sacred and can be seen as a ritual is really helpful in my opinion to, to knowing that you're doing something good for yourself. And this is not an opportunity to abuse yourself again. And, or instead, this could be an opportunity for you to nourish yourself. And again, reestablish the right relationship. So that's what we want to do the intuitive way and the slowing down and the ritual component. And so when you're ending the meal, you can find your own way to tell yourself that the meal is now over, you know, so that you can go and finish whatever else you're doing, get out of the rest and digest phase, um, you know, and then go and to your next activity so that you're not eating all day long, you know, just right. because something is good for you doesn't mean, again, you should be doing it all the time. There's a time and place. So for you, you made the time, you treated yourself, you savored the meal, you enjoyed it. And then it's now time to wrap it up and tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to be grazing on the rest of this meal or snacking away for the next couple of hours until the next meal. This is the end of this meal until my next meal. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, that's taking a, a tea. I love my teas. Mm -hmm. um, there's many different herbs that actually help with the digestive uh, process, whether you drink it before or after the meal. Some people like coffee. I will even dabble in a small piece of dark organic chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's just something that symbolizes that, you know, that's it. <laughs> the meal is <Yeah>. over. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Books, again, I just, um, I always like connecting with you and talking to you about these things. Um, and, you know, folks, if you want to connect with her and learn more about what she's up to, um, some of her tips on eating um, and, and even cooking, check out her website at Dr. Marina Booksov, B-U-K-S-O-V.com. Um, you can also listen to her podcast, the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. And if you're a professional provider, um, healthcare professional, or even just somebody interested in starting your own holistic practice, um, you know, again, go to her website, drmarinabooksov.com. And I mean, she's a wealth of knowledge, your wealth of knowledge. And again, I just always enjoy uh, talking with you and so grateful that you took this time to, to sit down with me again. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on, Dr. Matmon. It was a pleasure again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I leave you with this. Focus your thoughts on what is true, noble, righteous, pure, lovable, or admirable on some virtue or on something praiseworthy think about these things. I leave you with this. Focus your thoughts on what is true, noble, righteous, pure, lovable, or admirable on some virtue or on something praiseworthy. Think about these things.